Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Uh, here at Timberline, we stand when we read the inspired Word of God. Uh, but if you're hindered in some way, please remain seated and be comfortable. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by his sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, this very important scripture and uh, book of the Bible. Uh, it's just uh, a reminder that there's, there's much, much more to come, Heavenly Father, and, and it just did not end on the cross. And as we move forward this morning, Heavenly Father, we pray that you be with Pastor Nick. Give him strength and endurance uh, as he moves forward here with the sermon. And now we pray this in our Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. excited about this series. I hope you are too. Um, I've been looking forward to preaching through this book uh, for quite some time. Revelation is like the great denouement of the Bible. It shows us how the story ends. In Genesis, we begin with God creating all things, and he creates two people, Adam and Eve, and, and they're in a garden, and they're to multiply, and they're to fill the earth with image bearers. But we know because of sin, that does not happen. And so God unleashes his redemption plan, which climaxes in Jesus Christ coming and dying on a cross three days later, rising from the dead, that all who believe in him would be forgiven and adopted into his family. Now, at the end of the book, because of this gospel, we see that there will be a new heavens and a new earth, where now the entire earth will be filled with image bearers of God. God's plan has been fulfilled. But more than just showing us how the story ends, it shows us the hope we have now as we await Jesus' return. There are several different approaches and interpretations that one can take as they make their way through this book. And as we study, 
we are going to see and we're going to touch on some of these um, interpretations and approaches. But here's what I want us to do. Rather than try to fit this book into any preconceived thought or idea that we may have, I want us to just hear and I want us to feel the force and the flow of this book. You see, Revelation is a book that we are meant to feel, see, and hear. It's a book that moves. It's like a, it's like a symphony that stirs our heart and our soul so that at the end we would be standing, we'd be applauding, and in Revelation 22:20 20, we'd be echoing John's words, Come, Lord Jesus. That is how the book leads us. So Revelation, we'll start making our way through the outline here. And, and the first two are, are kind of foundational points. Just kind of want to make sure we, we understand certain parts about Revelation and how we go about it. So number one, we need to know Revelation is a unique and authoritative book from God to the church. In verse one, we're given this divine chain of communication. Basically, we're told, how did we receive this book? That's what verse one answers. And we are told the revelation of Jesus Christ, which that could mean the revelation about Jesus. But I think what it more means is it's the revelation that comes from Jesus. Because in this verse we have, in verse 1, we see that revelation comes from God. It goes to Jesus. It goes to an angel. It goes to John, thus then going to the servants, which is the churches. And so we are told how we have received this book. And here's what we need to know. Is this coming through or is it going in and out? Okay, it just sounds weird up here. All right. It could just be me and I sound weird today. Um, here's what we need to know, though. Uh, the book comes from God. It comes with his full authority, and as we will see, his fingerprints are over every word, over every letter, over every verse, every passage. Now, what makes this, uh, this book unique is the combination of genres that we have here. For one, it's a letter. In verse 4, we, we see it's a letter addressed to seven churches. It says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. I mean, that's just like Paul would begin one of his letters. Then we have grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. So it begins just like a letter, any of the other letters uh, in, the, in the New Testament. And it's written to seven churches. Most likely, these seven churches are representative of all the churches that would be there in Asia. Revelation is also prophetic. We see this in verse 3. Read aloud the words of this prophecy. Prophecy speaks about future events, but it also speaks about how God's people are to live now in the very present. And Revelation is also apocalyptic, and probably that's what it's best known for. In verse 1, the word revelation is, comes from the word apocalyptic. Now, if you remember, we began this year studying the book of Daniel, which Daniel has uh, the last half of Daniel is, contains apocalyptic literature. And the word we said back then, apocalyptic, uh, refers to unveiling, disclosing, or revealing. And so when we're in this type of literature, it's about revealing what is hidden. It's about pulling back the curtain. And this type of literature is often written by people who are persecuted and suffering. And so it's written to remind the people of the rule of God, the judgment of God, and the hope that God's people have. In fact, as John writes this, we'll see next week that he's on an island called Patmos because of his faith. He's been exiled 
because of his very faith in Christ. And at this time in, uh, in the world, first century Roman world, emperor worship was a huge threat to the early church. Domitian is the emperor at this time, and it was required by all people to worship the emperor as a god. And to refuse emperor worship could result in death, could result in exile, would surely affect your business, your friendships, and your very livelihood. So as we enter into this book, what we need to know is that the church is not at the center of the public life. It does not have a favorable position, but rather is on the outskirts of community and is often viewed with hostility and animosity. So that's how we come into this book. This is a hurting people, a suffering people, and as we get into chapters two and three, where we'll see a description of just what the life looks like in the church, we will see some of the very pains and hardships that they are going through. Now a unique feature of apocalyptic literature is its heavy use of symbols. If you're familiar with Revelation at all, um, you know that it talks about dragons and beasts and seals and trumpets and bulls and locusts and lions and a lion that looks like a lamb that was slain. And at first glance, you might think, man, this book came out of some fiction, horror, sci-fi movie. I mean, it's weird. It's strange. And, and how do we enter into a book like this? But what we'll see is that these symbols are helping us see things as they truly are. It's this unveiling, it's this disclosing that we would see the world as God truly sees it. We would see it with the heavenly perspective. And Revelation doesn't just use images as symbolic, but it also uses numbers very symbolically. So as we go through Revelation, we'll see numbers like the number 12, 12, and it's multiple, often refers to God's people. So we'll see uh, in chapter 7, there's 12 tribes, each made up of 12,000 people, totaling 144,000. All of that is representing the people of God. Number 10 is a number referring to completeness. We'll read about 10 horns and uh, 10 crowns, 1,000 years, which is a multiple of 10, all referring to completeness, complete periods of time or, or complete things. Uh, seven is a number referring to perfection. In chapter 1, we read about the seven spirits who are before the throne. That refers to the Holy Spirit, which is the perfect Holy Spirit. But we'll also read about the seven churches. Throughout the book, we read about seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven plagues, seven-headed beasts, and seven-headed dragon. And we have the number six. Six is one less than seven, so it's not quite perfect. It's actually imperfect, which is where we get that number 666, which we will see later on, which is that mark of the beast. So Revelation is a prophetic, apocalyptic letter. letter. It is a symbol-laden message from God to the church about how we live as we await Jesus' return. So that's what we're going to be looking at, how we live as we await Jesus' return. And, and there's going to be some things that are confusing in this book. And I will tell you from the beginning, I will not answer every question you have. Not because I don't want to, but probably because I won't be able to. Um, but we must not be afraid of this book or be worry, weary of this book. Um, because as we'll see the next point, Revelation is a blessing for the church. We need to engage this book. Look at verse 3. We read that, we read that there's a blessing for the one who reads, and for the one who hears, and the one who obeys this message. In fact, there are seven messages, again, 
Things are very symbolic in Revelation. There are seven blessings all throughout the book of Revelation. Every single blessing is about the enduring and about the persevering of God's people that we would stand firm in our faith as we wait for Jesus' return. Now think about this. God says to his church, his church that is suffering and being persecuted, that they will be blessed as they read, as they hear, and obey this letter. And then he says, for the time is near, meaning there's an urgency to this letter. So let me ask you, the fact that he gives us a blessing and says the time is near, should this make us timid? Should this make us cautious or hesitant in studying this book? Or should it compel us to want to know the truths that are in this book? The promise of blessing that stands at the very beginning of this book should cause us to lean into the book, knowing that there are beautiful and wonderful truths that await us as we come into this book. And remember this, the first century hearers, many of them were not well-educated. Some of them would be, many of them would not. Some of them would not be able to even read this book. And so let us not think that this book is so complicated that we're unable to understand it. It is made, it is given to us that what would happen is somebody would stand in front of a church and they would read Revelation. And as they read it and as the people heard it, they would be able to obey the message. They would not need charts. They would not need Excel spreadsheets to figure out the book of Revelation. But simply by the very hearing of the word, they would hear it, they would understand it, and they would be able to apply that message to their life. And so, so let us take heart, let us be encouraged that we can know this message. Now again, there will be hard things, but there is also a very clear message that comes through this book. Now I will say this, it will be helpful to know the Old Testament as we study this book. There are more Old Testament references and allusions to the Old Testament than in any other book in the New Testament. So we're going to dig in. Are you guys excited about this book? I, I am. I think it's going to be fun. Um, we got it all mapped out. Uh, if you have one of those bookmarks, there might be more bookmarks on the uh, tables outside. Those kind of have the, the, the series and, and the dates that we're going to do it on. I urge you, be reading the chapters before you come to Sunday. Just do that in preparation of your time for this time. Be reading whatever it is that we're going to be uh, studying. So next week, it's going to be the rest of chapter one. So read that uh, in preparation for this time. Be praying just for the Spirit to begin working in your heart that you would know. But here we go. We're going to start digging in to just some of the truths that we see in just these first eight verses, which these first eight verses are kind of setting a trajectory for helping us understand what's going to happen in the whole book. So first, Revelation unveils the glorious, omnipotent rule of our triune God. Starting in verse 4, we have a description of our triune God. It has John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. So we have grace and peace coming to the church from who? From a triune God. And it begins with the Father, from Him who is, who was, who is to come. Then, it, then we turn to the Spirit, the seven spirits who are before His throne. Remember, the number seven is symbolic. That's representing the perfect Spirit who is before His throne. And then we have a description of Jesus, which we have three descriptions of Him. He's the faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, ruler of the kings on earth. Probably a bigger description because the book largely rests on Jesus Christ. 
And then skip down to verse 8, which is at the end of this greeting. So at the beginning, we have a description of the Father, who is, who was, who is to come. And then at the, at the end, we have, I am the Alpha and Omega. This is God speaking. This is only one of two times that God speaks in the book of Revelation. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. You see what he's focusing on here? He's focusing on the rule and the power of our God. Notice the phrase, who is and who was and who is to come. It doesn't start with who was, it starts who is. It starts with very present tense. This is what the church needed to know in the first century. God rules now. He's in control right now and it's what we need to know today our god rules now he is he was he he is to come and he is right now our god has always ruled he will always rule revelation reveals that in the midst of chaos in the midst of looking like is there a God that rules? It's pulling back the curtain so that we, we would see, and as we get into chapters 4 and 5 with these pictures of the throne room, we see that God is on his throne. And he is bringing all of history to an end. At the end, in verse 8, we have the Alpha and Omega. Those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, meaning he is the beginning and the end. He has always existed. He will always exist. He exists right now he's on his throne and he is ruling so take heart we can stand firm there is no reality in which our god is not present and omnipotent that's where we get the word almighty he is the fortress that we can run to he is the shield that is always about us and his spirit notice even even the reference to the spirit the seven spirits who are what before his throne a reference to the very throne of god so the spirit is the one coming forth from the throne bringing us this grace and peace that god promises us and then notice how jesus is described he is the faithful witness he did all that jesus asked him to do he came to earth died on a cross for our sins but he did not stay dead which is why he's the firstborn of the dead He rose and conquered sin, death, and Satan. And we know that because he he rose, we also will rise. That's why he's the firstborn. What he has done is now guaranteed for all who believe in him. So because he rose victorious over sin, death, and Satan, we know that sin, death, and Satan has no hold on us, but we will rise also. Revelation again and again and again will show us that death is not to be feared and has no hold on the ones who trust in Jesus. That is a theme we will see throughout the whole book. And then we read, Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth. So he's the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, ruler of the kings on earth. Now, think about this message. It flies in the face of emperor worship. It flies in the very face of it. Here you have the Roman culture, which says we worship Domitian or whatever emperor it will be at that time. And here the church is saying, no, we don't. We worship the one who was killed, who then rose again, and now we believe reigns over all countries, over all continents, over all galaxies, who sits at the right hand of the throne of God. So at the very beginning of this book, 
Revelation is redirecting our gaze from that which appears strong, that which appears powerful, but really is not, and is directing our eyes to the one true triune God who does rule over all things. All throughout Revelation, we will see that God alone is truly powerful. There are many false powers, and they will come, and they will fall. But there is one who will continue to stand forever, and is one who is, who was, and who is to come. It is our God Almighty. Next we see, Revelation also proclaims the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, interestingly, um, Martin Luther was, I never sit, just so you know, this is really weird for me. I'm just going to highlight that I'm sitting now. Um, But I think it's going to be helpful. Uh, Martin Luther, which we could like, I mean, there's books written upon this, this reformer on the amazing things he's done for the church. And, and we, can, we can hold him up and say, man, this guy is amazing. He's done great things. But one thing that we will not hold him up for is what he thought of Revelation. He did not like this book. In fact, he said, my spirit cannot accommodate itself to this book. There is one sufficient reason of the small esteem in which I hold it, that Christ is neither taught nor recognized. Really? I mean, I... I have no idea how Luther came to this conclusion. I will say he was probably much smarter than me in just about every single way. But he missed it in Revelation. I mean, already from the beginning, we see this book comes from Jesus. It's already acknowledged him as the ruler of the kings on earth, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. As we progress through the book, we're going to see how it highlights the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now here in verses 5 and 6, it proclaims the very saving gospel of Jesus Christ. So I, I have no idea what Martin Luther was reading. So, I mean, we all make mistakes. Um, but what we see here, look, look, at verse, look at verse 5. In the middle of it, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, John reminds us of the love of Jesus and how he has freed us from our sins by his blood. The whole Bible is about Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament is leading us in preparation for Jesus. As we come into the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Everything that comes after that, we see uh, what Christ has accomplished for us. We see the birth of the church, the very body of Christ. Surely, as we come into Revelation, it's going to be about Jesus. The only reason we have true hope and lasting joy in this world is because Jesus, the Son of God, has, has come and died for our sins so that by His works, not ours, that we'd be saved and we could have everlasting life. And I urge you, if you have not trusted in Christ, if you are here today and, and you have not trusted in the saving grace of Jesus Christ, I urge you to do so today. The whole, the whole series is going to be about who Christ is and what He has done for us. If you, if you have friends that you've been engaging, I want to encourage you, this is a great series to bring them into because we're going to see just the beauty of the gospel all throughout this book from beginning to end. Um, one thing that Revelation shows is that all the things that we want to cling to because of our flesh, all the things that are in this world, powers and possessions, um, they all fade away. The only thing that stands firm 
is Jesus Christ and those who trust in him. And so I urge you, if you've not trusted in Jesus, to do so today. Uh, I'd love to talk with you afterwards, or there are elders who are here, just church members that are here, would love to be able to talk with you and pray with you about that. Um, but notice John, at, here in verse 5, he says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. But he doesn't stop there. He now is going to tell us what, what the gospel has achieved. And so he says, um, and he's made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Now this is surely an allusion back to Exodus 19, chapter 6. Or, chapter 19, verse 6. If you remember, God brings Israel out of Egypt through the ten plagues, through the Red Sea, and he brings them to Mount Sinai. And on, on Mount Sinai, he says, I am going to make you into a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And, of course, we see that in 1 Peter, that because of Christ, finally, uh, now the church is the royal priesthood and the holy nation of God. And now here in Revelation, we see that the church is the kingdom, the very priesthood to God. Hear this. When we believe in Jesus, we become priests to God. We're joined to one another, the church, a holy priesthood, meaning we worship God and we proclaim his glory to the nations. That's what we do. We come and we gather and we worship and we go out and we proclaim his glory. But um, we also, we become part of his kingdom, his very rule and power here on earth. Now, this doesn't mean we wield his power. We're not able to be hurt by any earthly forces. We know that's not true because in Revelation they're hurt. And we throughout the, the centuries of Christianity, we see that Christians have been persecuted. In fact, even in this day and age, Christians are persecuted. So it's not that we can't be hurt, but that... Um, but now we do participate in the very rule of God and that there's no earthly force, rule, power, or king that can separate us from the love of God. Our citizenship in the kingdom is as secure as the fact the tomb is empty and that Jesus is on his throne right now. So we're part of the kingdom. We're part of the priesthood. So let's just, just pause for a moment. The church in the first century feels the weight of emperor worship pressing down on them. They feel the temptation to compromise, and we'll see that in chapters 2 and 3. Work is hard. False teachers are abounding. Some of their brothers and sisters have been killed. They know there's dark days that lie ahead. They wrestle with anxiety. They wrestle with confidence, and they probably wonder at times, are we doing the right thing? Can we actually stand firm? Let me ask you, do you ever feel that way? Have you ever felt the weight of the world begin just to press on you? Do you feel sometimes the desire to compromise in your faith? Do you feel the lust of power, of possessions, of pleasure, just tugging on your soul? As the hurts and the pains of this world continue to press on, do you wonder at times, is there hope? Can I really stand firm? Is God really present? I hope you know, as we dig in this book, this is what Revelation is all about. It's about peeling back the curtain so that we would see that God truly is on his throne and that there is great hope. Revelation is about giving the church hope as we behold our God. It's about seeing the futility of this world and the hope 
and the confidence that we have because of Jesus Christ. Revelation is about strengthening our spines and turning them into to unbendable steel so that we'll be able to stand firm, not in our own strength, but by the very strength that comes to us from Christ. So we'll be able to stand firm in our faith, unwavering, unbending, even in the face of death, even in the face of martyrdom, that we would proclaim the name of Christ. One of my prayers, just as we go through this book, is that we would be strengthened together in our faith. That we as a body would grow closer in our knowledge in God, in our love for one another, and our hope. That we know that our God rules, that He's in control, and that we can stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Revelation also reveals the weight of the coming of Jesus Christ. Look down at verse 7. It says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. In verse 7, we read about the coming of Jesus on the clouds, uh, and that those who pierced Him will see Him, and that they will wail. Now this verse comes from Old Testament passages like Daniel 7, which we read earlier this year, if you remember. Uh, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. That, that's where we're getting this, this picture of those who will be wailing when Jesus comes. So this verse may mean several different things. It may mean, it may be referring to believers from every tribe, tongue, and nation that when Jesus comes, we'll be wailing uh, because of our sin as Christ returns and mourning over our sin uh, because of, of the glory and because of the holiness of Christ. And that's certainly a possibility. And many people believe that. It also may refer to unbelievers from every tribe and tongue and nation who will well as they experience the judgment of Christ upon them when he returns. Uh, they might say because of things like Revelation chapter 6, verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? So it may refer to believers. It may refer to the response of unbelievers. It may refer to both. Maybe we don't need to choose. I lean more towards uh, it referring to the judgment that's going to come upon those who have rejected Jesus and that they will wail on that day when Christ comes. So here's what, what I think John is doing. He's reminding us that there's a day coming when all evil will cease. The fight we are in is coming to an end. The temptations, the battles, the struggles, the hurts, the pains, they're coming to an end. They will not last forever. The powers of Rome and whatever worldly power there is, it will not be able to stand. In fact, in Revelation chapter 1, it very much pulls from Daniel chapter 2, where uh, if you remember, Daniel interprets the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, and in that dream, Nebuchadnezzar has a has a dream of a statue, and this statue is made up of, of four different pieces of metal, and then this statue is struck by a rock that crushes it and destroys all the earthly kingdoms and powers, and, and this rock is really the kingdom of God built upon Jesus Christ that comes into this earth and fills the entire earth with the glory of God. That's much of the language here in chapter 1 is being pulled 
from Daniel chapter 2. And so I think what we're having is that we're seeing that the kingdom of God has come at the beginning of Christ's coming, his death and resurrection, and we are moving towards the very consummation where Christ will one day return, and there will be a new heavens and new earth. And in that new heavens and new earth, there will be no more sin. At the end of the book, we'll read that the gates of the city will always be open because there will be no threat. And every single citizen will have the name of God written on their foreheads, meaning we, we're possessed, we're owned by God. We are his children and his very people, and we will have everlasting joy with him. That's, that's where the book is moving. And so it's, it's right now giving us this clue, this hint. It's coming to an end. All the evil, all the pains, all the struggles, all the battles that we're in, they're not going to last forever. They are finite. And then he says, amen, which means so be it. Oh, you can rest on the promises of God because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we know what he says will come true. All the battles that we're in will come to an end. I think he's also reminding us of our mission. There is a judgment. And those who reject Jesus will wail when he comes and they're thrown into the lake of fire. That's one thing we'll see clearly as we move throughout this book, is that there is a judgment. And this judgment is eternal, it's severe, and is the full outpouring of God's wrath. And so I pray that as we go through this book, that as our hope is strengthened, so also is our boldness, that we would share the gospel of Jesus Christ with unbelievers, that our hearts, that our compassion for those who do not yet know Jesus would be increased. As we know, there is a consequence for rejecting Jesus. And I pray that we would feel that weight and that we would, we would move towards those people who God has placed in our life, that we'd begin engaging them and evangelizing them with the gospel, that we'd share the gospel with them, bring them into your table groups, bring them in on Sunday mornings, whatever it takes, share the gospel with them, love them. I pray that this book will help fuel our desire to go on into missions, where not only do we hope to do, accomplish more here in 98503 in Thurston County, but that we would desire to do more outside of even the United States, wherever it would be that God would lead us. This last year we went to Lebanon. I pray that we continue to wrestle, God, where would you have us go? How can we regularly be sharing the gospel in other parts of the world? How can we be equipping missionaries in other places? Because we know that there is a judgment coming. And when that day comes, there is no changing of minds. And so I pray that our hearts would be united in the very, in the very passion for the glory of Christ and that that would fuel us to go out and we would share his name. We would share this gospel that has saved us and we'd go share it with others so that they would know the good news so that they would know there is hope on that day and that they will be gathered in with Jesus Christ as his children for all of eternity. Um, last point. Revelation stirs our hearts to volcanic praise and worship. It took me a while to come up with volcanic. It's the first time I put that in a point. But I had to get this like bursting forth idea. We live around a lot of volcanoes, so it seemed, it seemed, it seemed to fit contextually. Um, but go back to verse 5. Look at this. Uh, in verse 5, 
midway through, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do you see what John just did? He just burst forth into praise. In the greeting. So, like, let's just play this out. So, you guys come here, and, you know, 10.05, whatever it is, I walk up here. I'm like, hey, welcome to Timberline Baptist Church. My name's Nick Jackson. Our mission is to make disciples and make disciples, which means we love telling people about Jesus, that they would know Jesus and to live like Jesus. And you know what? Praise be to God. To him be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then we continue. Like, that's what he does. Like, it's like he can't contain the excitement with him. And, and what has he done? He's given a description of our triune God. He's reflected on the saving grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's focused on what is achieved for the church, made us a kingdom and priests. And he, he can't even contain himself. That's what we see all throughout this book. Throughout this book, we see praise after praise after praise. In fact, there's almost more praise in this book than almost any other book, probably other than the Psalms, than in the entire Bible. John praises God for his unending glorious rule. That's what he praises for. Look at that. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Your glory, your rule, your might, your power forever, God. That's what we praise. You see John as he's writing this. I mean, this, this is in my head. And he just pauses here in the greeting. Arms outstretched. Just, God, you are good. God, you rule. That is the effect that this book is to have on us as we make our way through, that we just pause. And we just say, God, you are good. You rule. There is hope in this world because of you, God, on your throne. So let us not be divided over ideas and interpretation and viewpoints or, or charts and our hopes to know the future in every single detail, but let us be moved to praise as we make our way through this book, as our resolve and our hope is increased, as we clearly see our God who rules. And so what I want to encourage you to do, if you don't mind, uh, stand with me real quick. And I just want to read some of the praises that we come across in this book. So go ahead and stand. It's a little bit of interaction time. I won't have us go into calisthenics or anything. But just stand. So I just want to, I'm just going to read some of the praises. Not all of the praises, but some of them. And I just, I just want you to think about these praises in your head. Just let your mind, just let your heart be, be just kind of enraptured by them. Just, just be consumed by them at this moment. And let these words be, be your words to God. Revelation 4.8 Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Revelation 4.11 Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Chapter 5, verse 12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. 
for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her, her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. All throughout the book, we have praise after praise after praise after praise. And in Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, it ends with, Come, Lord Jesus. That's how the book is meant to move us. So I just want us to echo these words. This is where we do it together. So we're all going to say, come, Lord Jesus. That was good, but we're actually going to now do it when I say on three. You kind of jumped the gun, but that's okay. I like the excitement. So we'll do it on three. Uh, <laughs> that was really good. I was really proud of you all. All right. One, two, three. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the effect would be standing like a giant symphony that reaches its climax as we move to the end. We're not dividing over different interpretations and trying to understand every little point because we'll understand a lot, but there'll definitely be some things we don't. But the clear thing is our God rules. All evil and wickedness will come to an end and we as his people have hope. Because of that hope, we can press on now despite any pressure, despite any worldly power that comes against us. Why? Because we are the royal priesthood of God and that we are made of his nation, made of his kingdom, his holy nation, and that nothing can separate us from his love. You guys can go ahead and sit down. This is what this book is about. And next week, we are going to go into this beautiful vision of Jesus Christ. At the end of the book, we have this beautiful vision of the bride of Christ. So this, these bookends here. Here we have the bridegroom. At the end, we'll see the bride. But I pray, be encouraged as we come throughout this book. There's much for us to see. There's much blessing that lies awaiting us in this book as we come. And so let us come very expectingly, knowing that we will receive a blessing as we enter into this book, because our God has promised it. And he is faithful and true. And we will clearly see that our God rules. Isn't that good news? It may not always look like it, but as Revelation peels back the curtain, we're going to see how we can always know that our God rules. Moving all events to the very return of his son, Jesus Christ, that we who believe in him will be gathered to him for all of eternity. And that is the hope that we have, the confident hope that we have. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll move into a time of communion. Our Father, we thank you for this morning. God, I'm excited about this book. I'm excited about this book, the book that you've given us, inspired by you, God. That it would equip us Correct, correct us that it would help transform us more into the image of your son. Lord, I pray that as we make our way through, and even as we've just touched on it today, that God, our hope would be strengthened. Not because of something inside of us, intrinsic to us, but because of your son, Jesus Christ, how you have sent him, the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth, the one who has loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood. 
may our hope be increased because of what you have done in your son Jesus Christ. And we know that now, because of that, we are your priesthood, we're your holy nation, and there is nothing that can separate us. But we, we are your people, God. May we stand firm at all times, praising you, glorifying you. God, be with us as a church that this letter, this apocalyptic, prophetic letter would transform us and that your will would be accomplished in it as we make our way through. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. I'm going to ask for the men to come down.